Welcome to another episode of Off the Menu. I'm your host, Vincent Franchini from Tumblr House, here with a post-traumatic Charles Coulomb. Post-traumatic? Like a trauma? Yes, you've undergone a trauma. A, a huge, terrible trauma? Fairly, fairly substantial. I mean, as traumatic as, I don't know, showing up at the 7-Eleven at 3 a.m. and not being served bourbon? That kind of trauma? That 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 level of pain. Well, I guess we all have different thresholds of pain and different triggers. I guess. <laughs> so you 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 would be triggered by showing up at the Seven Eleven and demanding <laughs> bourbon at three a.m. and not getting it. I would, especially if I was a war veteran that fought and risked my life overseas. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. It's a it's a shameful way America is treating its veterans of the Cold War. But, uh, <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, this refers to an earlier conversation. Pay it no mind. Nothing to see here. Move along. Move along. But, uh, no, well, I am a little bit traumatic because, as you know, we didn't have an episode last weekend because I was in Ukraine. Yeah. And there was, well, in the immortal words of Judy Garland in uh, Wizard of Oz, parts of it were wonderful, but parts of it were horrible. And uh, But I learned that if you don't know where your heart's desire is, then you never really lost it at all or something. You went to Ukraine to discover that? Well, that's what Judy <laughs> Garland did when she went to the land of Oz. That's uh, actually, I, I, I have to tell you, that, that is a true story. I saw The Wizard of Oz again before I went on the Ukraine trip. It was not a causal connection, in case you were wondering. Mm. But uh, nevertheless, it hit me once again, as it has, first time maybe five years ago, that what she says when she's talking to the good witch, Glenda, doesn't make any sense uh, at all. Really? It, it, no, it doesn't. I'm looking at the script as we speak, and we pull it all the way down, and the uh, at the very, very end, when uh, the wizard goes off in uh, his balloon, and she's stuck in Oz, uh, Glenda appears, the good witch, and, uh, ah, this is it. This is it. Uh, Glinda, the scarecrow says to the witch, then why didn't you tell her before? Because she wouldn't have believed me. She had to learn it for herself. And the tin man says, what have you learned, Dorothy? And Dorothy says, this is it. Are you ready? I'm ready. Well, I, I think that it, that it wasn't enough just to want to see Uncle Henry and Auntie M. And, then it's, and it's that if I ever go looking for my heart's desire again, I won't look any further than my own backyard. Because if it isn't there, I never really lost it to begin with. Is that right? And Glenda says, that's all it is. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. 
I thought it's basically appreciating what you have. Well, yeah, but stop and think again. If ever I go looking for my heart's desire again, I won't look any further than my own backyard. Because if it isn't there, I never really lost it to begin with. Yeah, that the, that uh, subordinate clause because is where it goes haywire, I think. It, if it, it isn't make, there, that part doesn't make sense, yeah. Well, I, I never really lost it to begin with. You never and, lost your heart's desire. That's true. And then Vinda adds helpfully, that's all there is. It, so look, it, only, in your words, it doesn't need to make sense, Charles. Well, it's that, sentimental. Well, that's good. <laughs> it's good because it doesn't. And I, 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 I think that the worst, what's even worse, is Glinda enabling her. I mean, Glinda, the good witch of Oz, was an enabler. I would call her tolerant. I'd say she's an enabler. I mean, she, Judy Garland, spouts this drivel, and her response is, "Yes, that's right." I mean, what would it be if I said to you, you know? If my nose wasn't such a sandwich, I'd probably do, I'd probably swim with goats. And you said that is so true. You would not be helping me. Well, I believe in individual responsibility, and maybe Glenda the Good Witch does too. I mean, if you're going to be a schmuck, it's not our job to correct you. Oh, I see. So basically, you're saying that uh, Glenda the Good Witch, so called, threw Judy Garland under the bus. For the sake of the greater good, yes. What was held by throwing <laughs> poor little Dorothy under the bus? What greater good? It's the overall... What year was Wizard of Oz made? Uh, uh, 1939. 1939, okay. Um, well, I mean, if she doesn't do that, then it's not really a happy ending. You're just sort of robbing the happy story. You're taking away from everybody. No? How, how I would be punishing is, everybody. How is Dorothy being rendered incoherent by her psychological break? How is that a good thing? It's it, it's not about coherency, Charles. It's about positivity and sentiment. And Dorothy's uh, message was that in spades. So basically you're saying that Dorothy's message lives on for each of us today in our hearts. Exactly. All right. Well, that's comforting. <laughs> I guess I've gotten over my post-traumatic stress syndrome. Okay. So he started, uh, he started this conversation talking about Ukraine. <laughs> ah, so he did. And I've just come back from Ukraine, and I mentioned. Yes. And you know what I, you know what I learned in Ukraine? What? The... <laughs> you know what I learned in Ukraine. <laughs> yes, you do. I learned that it wasn't just enough just to want to see Uncle Henry and Auntie M. And it's that if I ever go looking in Ukraine for my heart's desire again, I won't look any further than my own backyard. Because if it isn't there, I never really lost it to begin with. That's what I learned in Ukraine. Well, that's Don't great, you... Charles. Did you write an article on that? Did you post it in the European Conservative? I'd love to see that. 
looking for my heart's desire in Ukraine. <laughs> and not finding it because I never lost it to begin with. Well, that makes sense. No, I, I perhaps was not seeking for my heart's desire in Ukraine. But what I was looking for was actually several different things at once. Um, as a um, uh, note of personal confession, I've always wanted to see Ukraine. So hmm. that was in the air. There were, in particular, there were several places I wanted to see: uh, Uzhgorod and uh, Mukachevo, and the area called Podkarpatska Rus, that was part of Hungary prior to 1918, inhabited by Ruthenians, uh, Slavic people, and some others, um, some Slavs, you know. Uh, but it was Hungarian until 1918. It was part of Czechoslovakia from 1918 to 1939. It went back to Hungary again in 1939 and stayed with them until 1945, when it was annexed by the Soviet Union. And then it stayed part of Ukraine when Ukraine became independent in 1991. So it's a very particular, special little place all on its own. I wanted to see what is called Eastern Galicia, which was part of Austria, uh, Lviv, uh, places like that. Then, of course, Kiev, I've always wanted to see, the center of Slavdom. And then Chernivtsi, on the, uh, another Austrian town on the Romanian border. And a uh, side trip down into Transylvania as well. So I did all that. And I saw many beautiful churches, saw the, the uh, church at Rushiv, where there was a, um, a Rushiv, where there was an apparition both in 1914 and 1987, met the priest of the place and his daughter, who was a witness to it. I remember being five years old and looking at this luminescent woman floating over the uh, church balcony with everybody else in the village, a lot of other people, and asking her mother, how does she do that? The mother said, don't know. It's just kind of a matter-of-fact approach to an apparition, but there it is. Um, so, uh, from there, went on to Lviv, Lviv, Lemberg, Lvov, uh, beautiful city, beautiful Catholic churches, went to Kiev, uh, saw the great, uh, cathedral of Santa Sofia, which is really where Slavic Christianity began, East Slavic Christianity, and then, um, was there four days, five days, and went out into the districts that had been occupied, some of them, uh, specifically Chernigov and, uh, on the one hand, and uh, Bucha and Irpin on the other. Uh, there were ruined buildings and so forth scattered around Kiev, but in the two places I mentioned, there were a lot. Um, bombed apartment buildings. Remember, this was only six months ago, but they were building in a lot of places, which is interesting, the way they, they've put the nose to the grindstone. Um, talked to a number of witnesses of what went on during the Russian occupation. Uh, very different, uh, by the way. In Bucha and Irpin, uh, there was a lot of random shooting of civilians by frightened Russian soldiers who were shooting anything that moved. 
uh, in Chernigov, they were much, much more disciplined. Uh, there was only one civilian death that any of the people we spoke to were familiar with, and this man was a forest ranger. And the supposition is that he was taken into custody by the Russians, thinking that as a ranger he would know everyone in the area who had a hunting rifle. But he either didn't know or wouldn't tell them. Either way, he died under interrogation. So uh, these things are war crimes, of course, but they're not they're not genocide, but they are war crimes. And um, you know, you can argue about the justification or lack thereof of Mr. Putin's invasion of Ukraine all you like. It doesn't doesn't change the fact that these things happened and that Ukraine did not invade Russia. Uh, but at any rate, three months ago, after invading six months ago, three months ago they pulled out, and the areas are working very hard to recover. Um, but in the cities I was in, including Kiev, you would never really know, unless you knew, you wouldn't know, that there was a war on. And to my surprise, a lot of men of military age running around in civilian clothes you get the impression that, um, you know, the, the whole masculine element of Ukraine has been destroyed. It's not. There are a lot of, lot of guys running around. Um, and the, the cities seem very peaceful. Very, uh, I didn't know if there'd be a raise in crime or, you know, if they'd, if they'd sort of be battening down the hatches or something. But except for some military checkpoints around Kiev and Chernigov uh, and the occasional poster, you wouldn't have known Ukraine was at war. But the combat zones were all far off to the east and west, or east and south of World War. Uh, but the Ukrainians are very, the ones we talked to, were very determined to carry on the fight. Um, It's hard to say where it's going to go, uh, but it'll go somewhere. Uh, and then leaving, there no, there was, we left from uh, Chernovitsi and Bukovina to Suceava, Romania, which is about an hour drive. There were no trains anymore. It cut off. So we found an autobus which uh, left at 4.30, got us to Suceava. My colleague went on to Bucharest. I went to Cluj for two nights in Pennsylvania. But to get to Cluj, the train went a third of the way through the Borgo Pass and then left the Borgo Pass to go north. But I can say now that I have been through the Borgo Pass, not all the way through. And it was only in daytime. And everyone in my car, when I said, the children of the day, what music they make. They looked at me as if I was crazy. And when I said to everyone that came on to the car while we were on the Borgo Pass, I am Dracula. I bid you welcome. Not a single one of them even cracked a smile. Are you, are you serious? So is that a true story? No. 
What is true is that I did teach our Ukrainian driver who didn't speak English, but with the help of Google Translate, we were able to communicate. I did teach him to uh, use Bela Lugosi's wonderful uh, quote, I never drink wine. And he got the intonation down perfectly. Nice. So I have been in the Borgo Pass, and I'm very proud of myself. Uh, anyway, I'm sure I'll write a lot about what I saw over there. Two important things happened while I was there that I knew nothing about. One was that the Ukrainian Orthodox Diocese of Kharkov in the northeast of the country came into the church as a whole, into the Catholic Church. The other is that the first Tridentine Mass since the Council was held in the Latin Cathedral in Kiev, St. Nicholas. I saw uh, the church, but not the. Uh, not, I didn't know about the mass. So these are all all fascinating things. Uh, that, as I say, over the Borgo Pass into Transylvania, saw a lot of friends. And yesterday, I flew back here via Bologna, and I've been ensconced ever since. On the verge of my setting out, an important thing happened in Catholic circles. Okay. The Holy, Father, the Holy Father decapitated the Order of Malta. What does that mean exactly? It means he took it over completely, dismissed the ruling council, replaced it with his own creatures, and issued a new constitution that they have to accept, which removes all of the requirements of nobility amongst the leadership of the uh, order and places it squarely in the hands of the 90 or so uh, uh, professed religious of the order. So basically, its sovereignty is shot, and the Holy Father does whatever he wants. Did, did they have to um, acquiesce to all of that? Yeah, I guess so. They certainly did, anyway. I mean, what would happen if they didn't? Oh, you know the Holy Father. He'd fly into a rage, maybe excommunicate them, maybe stamp his foot, maybe slap somebody. Excommunicate? You know? Has he excommunicated anybody? No, he hasn't. He hasn't. <laughs> yeah. But, of course, you you remember the Chinese chick he slapped. Yeah. Don't be a dope. Don't be a snitch. Don't be do like, that, Charles. No, we're not going to go there. No, we're not going to go there. No, I know what you're doing. We're not going to go there. You're not going to jeopardize this I'm show. I'm not jeopardizing. Look, I'm simply exercising a particular regional culture of our nation. No, you can't do that. I'm sorry. I, I, right, I, I am taking charge. Fine. Yeah. Then let me ask you a question. Fine. Well, let me do that. Would you let me get a bottle of bourbon at 3 a.m.? <laughs> yes, I would. To overcome your sorrow of not being able to say that. Yes, I would. All right. <laughs> what if it made me a dope? Or a snitch? <laughs> You're skirting. No. All right. You know, I've noticed that over the years, you have developed something of a suspicion toward my motivations. 
That's called adaptation, Charles. Arrival of the fittest. <laughs> <laughs> Very scientific. Well, what I what I need to understand, you know, I'm a little bit like the protagonist in the song Mrs. Robinson. We'd like to get to know a little bit about you for our files. <laughs> Look around you, all you see is sympathetic eyes. <laughs> All right, fine. We'll move on. All right. Thank you. All right. Uh, let's do State of the Week, shall we? State of the Week. All right. I can do State of the Week. State of the Week this week is Maryland. Oh, wow. Yeah. Maryland. I love Maryland. I really do. Maryland is a wonderful state. Where to where to begin? How to open up this toy box of wonders, this cornucopia of historic treasures? Well, I guess we'll start at the far end of the state. Cumberland. It's all wooded and wild. But you keep going eastward, and you will come to Mount St. Mary's. Uh, which is the the Catholic uh, seminary and college uh, in Emmitstown, uh, Maryland, where you'll also find one of the two great national shrines of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, the other one being in Lower Manhattan. Keep going, and you'll come to Frederick, which is a beautiful little town where Gary Potter now lives, and uh, was made famous by the poem from the Civil War, Barbara Fritchie, who was an old lady, and when the Confederate Army was marching through Frederick, she had her U.S. flag waving proudly, and she said, shoot if you must this old gray head, but spare your country's flag, she said. But that's just Frederick. So we keep going east, and we come to fabulous Balmer, Balmer, Maryland, Baltimore. I don't know where to begin with Baltimore. So much good stuff. For those of you who are very, very much Americanophiles, you can go out to see Fort McHenry, home of the original Star Spangled Banner. You can see the Cathedral of the Assumption, which is the oldest basilica cathedral of the United States. Uh, St. Alphonsus downtown, uh, where they have the Tridentine Mass, beautiful Gothic church. Uh, unfortunately, the late lamented Hausner's is no longer with us. It's a wonderful restaurant, but it's gone. Uh, if you go to the library, you can, uh, the uh, Pratt Free Library, you can get a lot of stuff by local sage, H.L. Mencken. The Edgar Allan Poe Museum it will, guess what? Stuff about the other great Baltimore literary figure, Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, Baltimore, I love Baltimore. Uh, it is a town that combines a certain amount of southern gentility with these kind of ethnicities you're used to in uh, northeastern, uh, the northeastern United States. So there are Italian and German quarters and so on. Um, 
Baltimore is, is just a beautiful place. But you go a little bit further south, you come to the state capital, Annapolis. Oh, I forgot two things about uh, Baltimore. One is I, I, I would be evil to forget the Buddy Dean show and the Buddy Dean committee. These were the young kids that would uh, dance the rock and roll dances every day in beautiful downtown Baltimore. Uh, the other great light out of that wonderful city is your friend, John Waters, the filmmaker, who uh, more than any, any movie he did has a quote that I have used forever. It is, I'd have sold out years ago if I could only have found someone willing to buy. <laughs> yeah. I love that. So then we go further south, and what do we find? You guessed it, the capital, Annapolis, Maryland. Well, it's most famous for the Naval Academy and St. John's College, but there's also the old state house, uh, old St. Mary's Catholic Church, old St. Anne's, the colonial Anglican Church, uh, a lot of little shops and so forth in Annapolis. It's a bit like a colonial Williamsburg that stayed the capital. Uh, if you go further south in Maryland, you come into the Catholic country. Uh, Prince George's County, St. Mary's County, and so on. The very tip you come to St. Mary's, and there are a lot of old Catholic churches in that part of the world. They're really, really nice. Then go all the way down, you come to St. Mary's City, the first capital of Maryland, uh, which, again, it's, it's not Colonial Williamsburg, but it's very nice. Then there's the Eastern Shore, and that is a world unto itself. But if you like hunting ducks or going fishing and stuff like that, you will love the Eastern Shore and the picturesque dwellings and accents of its denizens. And that, well, oh, Maryland, my Maryland, we will be true till death. Remember thou the bloody gore that flecked the streets of Baltimore and be the battle queen of yore. Maryland, my Maryland. Gosh, that looks amazing. I've always wanted to explore like the whole Chesapeake area, too, and just see what it's like. Um, it's 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 really fascinating. You'll enjoy it. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I know that's one of your favorite states, right? It really is. Yeah, I yeah. love Maryland. All right. Um, all right. Time for uh, the questions. Oh. All right. Uh, first question is from too young to be a curmudgeon. Uh, or too young. To be a curmudgeon. All right, go ahead. You were saying? All right. They say, Dear Mr. Frankini and Mr. Coulomb, I have heard horror stories out of Bucha, Ukraine. I appreciate Charles's humility, but may he tell us what he heard and saw and gathered from visiting there. More importantly, may he speak to us about Queen Elizabeth II and her passing. And what can monarchist Catholics in America do to honor her? Also, as a neophyte, I add, can masses be said for her? How will the British people honor her? And has it ever been the custom of a people to don mourning clothes for their monarchs and others? 
Wow, that's a lot. Okay, let's start with Ukraine. Well, first question again. Uh, what Basically what you heard, saw, and gathered uh, from Ukraine, especially Bucha. Ah, yes. Well, I was in Bucha, and it was it was terrible. Uh, you know, there were there were a lot of bomb departments and uh, and all that. Then in the in the church at Bucha, they've got pictures of the uh, corpses that were gathered, many of whom were civilians. It's a very somber place. Irpin next door is even worse. Uh, Saw a whole neighborhood that had been bombed pretty badly. So, uh, the rest of my conclusions I've already said, as you say. Yeah. All right. So the next one is just on Queen Elizabeth II and her passing. What are your What are your thoughts? Well, you know she uh, she was always the queen. I mean, she was queen before my time, before I was born. I can't think of a time when she wasn't queen. I didn't. I have not been alive during such a time. Uh, she was always a symbol of stability. I mean, she wasn't someone you thought about constantly, uh, but she came up a good deal. Uh, she carried herself well. She seemed incapable of doing a pratfall or a faux pas in public. You know, I was I was used to things like uh, President Johnson having cabinet seats on the toilet, or uh, President Ford fall, constantly falling off airplanes. Um, the Queen always carried herself with a plum, and never, except with very rarely, would we allowed to see the interior one. Most of the time. She was like Franz Josef here was for so many decades. She was an, an, an ending symbol of duty and service, uh, both in Britain and Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and so on. Uh, her death, in a sense, takes one of the last links away with my childhood. And in a lot of ways, compared to the creatures that pass for leaders today, it's like the last grown-up died. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, all right. Uh, so what can monarchist Catholics in America do to honor her? Well. Can masses be said for her? Uh Yes. And in fact, all over England and Canada and Australia and all that, there are masses going on as we're saying, as we're speaking. Um, the, uh, beyond that, you could sign the, uh, you could go to the site of the royal family and sign the book of condolence, unless you you live in a place that has them physically. Um, you can wear a black tie for a month. The sign of mourning. Um, some people are even wearing uh, Union Jack uh, pell pens to show solidarity with the bereaved. Um, you know, and and also you can 
if you have reasons for not particularly liking the royal family, the fact that they're Protestant, the fact that they're uh, connected uh, more especially before, not now, with Freemasonry, with the fact that Prince Charles knows Klaus Schwab, or sorry, King Charles knows Klaus Schwab. Uh, you know what? Whatever. Don't bring it up right now. You know? I mean, imagine that you were at your grandmother's funeral. And some moron said, you know, I heard she used to shoplift when she was a girl. What was the thing of that? Now, the implication, of course, since he heard it from somebody, he doesn't even know it's true. But he's repeating it. Why would you do that at the woman's funeral? I don't know. Because there's something stupid that feels good about itself? Is that it? But people enjoy making really snarky and idiotic comments about the royal family right now. You know, you may not like them, and you may feel this or that about them, but this is neither the time nor the place. You know, and I hope, if you're going to go on about how terrible it is that the royal family are Protestant, you better be praying for their conversion every day. You know, mouth closed, hands together, lips moving silently. Otherwise, if you're simply happy to yap about someone not being Catholic, but not wanting to pray and work for their conversion, then you are a total hypocrite and have nothing to say anyway. Well, other than that, it's, you're not actually being charitable and you're complaining, but you're not actually interested in their welfare. No, well, you're not. You're just interested in, in expressing yourself. I, I have an opinion. I have an opinion. Well, as the drill sergeant said to me when I was in boot camp, opinions are like, we'll say, rear ends. Everybody has one. Hmm. That's what he said. All right. Um, has it ever been the custom of a people to don mourning clothes for their monarchs and others? And, and yes. how, how will the British people honor her? Well, masses and uh, other religious services are, of course, the, the month of mourning, which means the black tie. Um Scaling back on certain public entertainments and things like that. Okay. Um, question from Connor, who says, Dear Charles and Vincent, first let me say I extend my condolences for Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Though as an American, she never reigned over our shores. I know many, including myself, did have a strong fondness for her here. As has been said before, when Americans said the Queen... Everyone knew exactly whom that was. Secondly, the queen is dead. Long live the king. I was surprised to hear Charles decided to become Charles III. I would have bet he would have become uh, George VII. Obviously, the name Charles carries uh, the name uh, Charles carries major significance in British and, Jake, uh, and Jacobite history, asserting royal rights, 
Restoration, Tradition, and Catholicism. And I know he is fully aware of all of that. Uh, what does Charles think about His Majesty's decision to become Charles III? What might His Majesty hope to signify with this name? Are we going to see a live performance of the show Charles III entering Parliament and dismissing corrupt politicians? Probably not, but you can always dream. God bless you both, and God save the king. Long may he reign. Yes, indeed. Well, that's a very good question, and it occurred to me last night. Um because I, too, had heard that he was likely to be George VII. Uh, Charles III, the show, of course, every monarchist dream of Parliament being kicked out on its uh, lost in its ear. Um, one hopes, you know, one looks at the preceding Charleses. You had Charles I, who was going to lose his head over important issues, man of integrity, as you might say. Not just that, though, he was a man who encouraged England's uh, interior life, its art, its architecture, uh, and protected the uh, peasantry against the rising oligarchy, fought against the enclosures and so on. Um, and under him, you had the Cavalier poets, the Caroline Divines, the metaphysical poets. It was a great time of literature and learning in England, which he stimulated. Charles II, his successor, was allowed in power again by a lot of the same people who had killed his father. And he had to pretend somehow that everything was restored the way it was, although, of course, it wasn't. He gave the signal to... Uh, Britain to have a good time after Cromwell's decease. Mm. He was very diplomatic in his dealing with Parliament, but he was also very firm. And then, of course, the original Charles III, the first Charles III, was the man whom we know in history as Bonnie Prince Charlie, the fellow who was willing to risk everything and lost on his Scottish gamble and has remained a romantic figure ever since. The three Charleses, with whom, consciously or not, the new king seems to associate himself. Well, a certain insight, I think, into King Charles's character might be brought by this letter he wrote in uh, um, not January uh, 21st, 1993, to uh, Tom Shabir, who's the director of the Prince's Trust at that time. And this is, I think, a very important one. Quote, now he's writing in 93, bear in mind. For the past 15 years, I've been entirely motivated by a desperate desire to put the great back into Great Britain. Everything I have tried to do, all the projects, schemes, speeches, etc., have been with this end in mind. And none of it has worked, as you can see too obviously. In order to put the great back, I've always felt it was vital to bring people together. And I began to realize that the one privilege my position has over anyone's else, anyone else's is that I can act as a catalyst to help produce a better and more balanced response to various problems. I have no political agenda, only a desire to see people achieve their potential, to be decently housed in a decent, civilized environment that respects the cultural and vernacular character of the nation. 
To see this country's real talents, especially inventiveness and engineering skills, put to best use to the best interests of the country and the world. At present, they are being disgracefully wasted through lack of coordination and strategic thinking. To retain and value the infrastructure and cultural integrity of rural communities where they still exist because of the vital role they play in the very framework of the nation and the care and management of the countryside. To value and nurture the highest standards of military integrity and professionalism as displayed by armed forces because of the role they play as an insurance scheme in case of disaster. And to value and retain our uniquely special broadcasting standards, which are renowned throughout the world. The final point is that I want to roll back some of the more ludicrous frontiers of the 60s in terms of education, architecture, art, music, and literature, not to mention agriculture. Having read this through, no wonder they want to destroy me or get rid of me, end of quote. Thus says the king. He said he is kind of unusual because he starts saying, I don't want to be political. But then he said a lot of political stuff. But see, those aren't political. He said I, rolling back the stuff that came out of the 60s? Yeah, that's not political. That's cultural. See, here's one of the funny things. In our system, everything is political. We always think of everything as being political. If anybody is interested in doing something for the people, it's got to have a political angle to it. But he's not going to get reelected. He has the luxury to be concerned with the permanent status of his people. Well, how about this? What is he referring to when he's saying broadcasting standards? Broadcasting standards. Once upon a time, uh, the BBC was the standard, both in terms of quality of programming and in elegance, dare I say, of diction and presentation for the entire world. And it's not that anymore. Couldn't that bleed into politics a little bit? Being politically everything, correct? Everything. Well, see, that's the thing. Political correctness makes everything political. Yeah. But that's wrong. That's just wrong. You know, there's a phrase that you would hear really stupid academics uh, excrete through their uh, noses or whatever orify they use to speak, um, which was, the personal is political. To the modern pea brain mind, there's no such thing as an apolitical space. Everything's political. Didn't the Pope say that too? Oh, the Pope? Yeah. In praising that idea or against oh, it? I, I, well, I think it was in terms of, um, I can't remember, but basically, um, uh, I can't remember. Um, but I thought but it, was, never... it was just that religious people are political. So in terms of staying silent sort of but, it's, but you see it's not political in the sense of party politics and getting one side in at the expense of the other you see let's put it this way there are certain things that everybody should be in favor of like kids not coming out of 20 years of education stupid and ignorant not knowing anything 
everyone should be in favor of education being effective. Well, I, I no, you're no, going my party. We're the moron party. We're not doing that. We don't. No, no. See what you call intelligence, we call oppression. Well, that yeah. that literally happened in Donald. No, because you're reminding me of Donald Trump's uh, State of the Union one year, and you know, this obviously the State of Union operates where one side claps, the other side basically folds their arms and is pissed off the whole time. Um, but he. I remember even for uh, saying stuff like improving uh, the in, the aging infrastructure of the nation, <laughs> that was oh. political. And only one second. Oh, oh, well, see, again, if you think that's political, you need to shut up. And you need not to have a vote. You just need to be quiet and sit somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, just a little person, all by yourself, perfect in your own little world. Because the truth is that there's a lot of stuff that benefits everyone, that everyone needs. And that the only thing, quote-unquote, political about it are the means of achieving it. How are we going to pay for it? Who's going to do the actual work? That kind of thing. Okay, you know, I'm I'm really curious what you're going to say to this one. What about environmentalism? What about preserving the environment? Is that political? It didn't used to be. It didn't used to be one of the uh, things I find interesting. I mean, I was a Boy Scout back when it was you know Boy Scouting, uh, and our great heroes were people like Hornaday and John Muir and uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, for whom conservation. We didn't talk about environmentalism in those days. We talked about conservation of natural resources was a very particular thing with a very particular end. The end was man. If the natural, uh, if natural resources, the natural environment is destroyed, everyone suffers. If they're uh, conserved, if they're retained, Everyone benefits. And this was something that was quite generally accepted. But what happened starting in the early 70s was the concept of quote-unquote environmentalism, which rather than seeing the environment as something to be preserved and protected for the good of man and his use, it was seen as a thing in and of itself. Only, for, you know, only for its own sake, which is wrong. It's absolutely wrong, uh, and believe it or not, it's also self-defeating because people are not going to pay for something they can't benefit from. So, if you say well, we're not going to allow anyone in order to preserve their integrity, we're allowing no one into the parks. Well, that's not us. Who's going to pay for their upkeep? So. All right. So bringing us back around to Prince Charles. So in his list of items, he listed what is, in your opinion, apolitical items. But in our modern world, they are still political. 
Well, everything's political. Whether you're allowed to use uh, tissue paper in the bathroom is political. I'm sure you'll find a political party that feels that it's wrong and you should use sandpaper or carrots or something. <laughs> okay, yeah, carrots, yeah. Um, okay, so... All right, uh, so... How do you think Charles's reign will compare to uh, the Queen's? Um, now, I have to admit, um, I was n I have not been moved by the Queen's historical um, public speeches, like the one she did for COVID. I mean, it's it's good, but it wasn't emotionally engaging. I would say. I have to admit, with Charles's, I was like, oh, cool. He issued a, you know, he addressed everybody. And I didn't have any expectation. Then I, I ended up being teary at the end of Whoa. it because of his language and what he was saying. Well, you, you got to bear in mind that Prince Charles, or sorry, King Charles is a very passionate man. He always has been. He's very passionate about the things he's passionate about. Uh, I would, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I would guess, although it probably would never get as, as exciting as King Charles III, the play in that movie, but I would guess that he might be likely to butt heads with a prime minister that his mother would have. Over what? Who can say? But... I know that he has certain views, and as he says, others will have to take them up now that he's king. But how far away from his from his heart will they be? And, he, and also, is he sending us a message by his choice of name? I don't know. Do you? If he is, if he is, then he may very well come into conflict with one or another sitting prime minister. The um. One of the videos I saw on, on Queen Elizabeth, it was talking about, it was praising her as a constitutional monarch for not getting involved in politics and stuff yeah. like that. Um, do you think Charles will get more involved in some way, or at least be perceived as getting more involved in, to the point where uh, people are going to say, "Whoa, calm down! You should. You're speaking out too much. Just, just be a, a figurehead." I don't know. It's possible, but I'm willing to say that if he does, he'll probably be right, or be more right than whatever, uh, whatever dweller at the public trough uh, he's in conflict with. I mean, there, were, there was, uh, some years ago, there were the famous Black Spider memos, which you may have heard of. Uh, these were things that uh, David Cameron's government fought tooth and nail to keep from being exposed by the Guardian. And what they were was the correspondence between then Prince Charles and various government uh, drones and dronettes uh, because... Various people had problems, you know, minor people, uh, you know, us people, the folk that don't matter, would have problems with various government entities. They couldn't get anything done. 
they'd write the Prince of Wales asking for help. And he, in turn, investigated on his own with the government office. Well, the result were called the Black Spider Memos because of his manner of handwriting. Uh, the government fought very hard to keep those from being exp exposed in public. Uh, and a lot of people thought they were afraid to show the world what how stupid, quote-unquote, Prince Charles was. Nope, nope, nope. They're forced to expose them. And if you read them now, you can read them all online. They show how concerned and really how brilliant he is about looking after his people and so forth. Uh, it turned out it wasn't much of a coup for the, uh, for the uh, Cameron government, but it was a coup for him. I feel like I, my personal, if I was to look into my own little crystal ball, I feel like it takes a tremendous amount of discipline to do what the queen did to not even offer an opinion on, you know, on anything no. to truly stay out. And I feel like Charles's passion is going to lend itself to him expressing an opinion. And with everybody in such an emotional state, I feel like it's going to get roped in into some various media circuses and turmoil and things. I feel like that's going to happen. Well, if it does, I will lay even money that the king will be right and his critics will be the usual band of morons. Well, that's part of it, too. That's part of it is because that creates this um, event is it's going to be a rallying cry of sorts where if he speaks out and he's going to be right, but then the whole media like tries to destroy him. If that happens, that's a huge uh, polarizing event. Yeah. You know, it, it, it would be. And of course it would be the King's party and the scumbags or whatever they'd call themselves. And, uh, one, one could imagine it happening. Um, and maybe that's what's needed. Maybe there needs to be a cleansing and a clearing of the air. Um, Lord knows that in Elizabeth's last years, uh, all sorts of terrible things were done by the governments that she could not stop. So perhaps it is time for a bit more of the crown's freedom to be restored to the king. Maybe... Their, their high mightinesses of parliament and the creatures of the cabinet should not be little gods reigning over the rest of us. All right. Uh, we're going to cut it short. We're almost at an hour, and we're up really late, admittedly, for Charles's time, and we're kind of getting into sleepy time Charles mode, I can tell. So uh -huh. we're going to have uh -huh. one last question uh, from uh -huh. Anita Moore. What? W huh? All right. Uh, Anita Moore says, what does Charles forecast for the reign of Charles III? Should we be concerned about the fact that as Prince of Wales, he has been palling around with Klaus Schwab and the other globalist maniacs? I can't help noticing the name, by the way, as a bit of, of a step on Jacobite toes. Hmm. Well, I don't think it's a stepping on their toes. If anything, I think it's more a sign of sympathy. 
as far as his quote unquote palling around, you got to remember that people in a certain strata of life know each other and they meet each other just the way it is. Uh, I don't want to shock anyone, but I myself have been to lunch at Rotary Club number four. Wow. Yeah. That doesn't seem like much to you, but Rotary Club number four is actually in downtown LA. They have lunches, I think, once a month or once a week, something. Anyway, whatever it is, uh, there are a huge number of the movers and shakers in Los Angeles that are members of this thing. Uh, politicians, businessmen, and all that. And collectively, they tend to direct the direction of the city of Los Angeles. And when I was there, a couple of things struck me. One of them was that the vast majority of the voters had no idea who most of those people in that room were. Mm. Even though they're the ones that, to a great degree, control the direction that LA is going to go in. But the second thing is that being a member of Rotary Number Four does not guarantee any kind of status, but be any kind of unanimity. You see, every group has factions and so forth. Um, and the other thing too, for the Prince of Wales, he has to somehow guide his country through the current power politics. How do you do that? Well, one thing is you are around the people with power. I, I think people, you know, I've seen pictures and I've gotten the impression uh, that even Republicans and Democrats mingle with each other in a shocking yeah. like, like it's just like, like the, there's these hot button issues, but at the same time, they're in the same social sphere and they just go to the same dinner parties and hang out. And, you That's know. just the way, it's the way it is. I mean, always has been, always will be. Uh, now, having said that, the new King has a number of views like uh, on uh, population control and uh, climate change that I have absolutely no use for. But there are suspicions that he holds, not suspicions, superstitions that he holds in common with just about everybody in that class, including, of course, our dear Holy Father, the Pope. Now, that being the case, he's not perfect by any stretch. But I can tell you that having read a lot of his stuff, like the letter I read you earlier, um, yeah, he's far from perfect, but he's better than almost anybody I've ever had to vote for, with the exception of Ronald Reagan. Is Charles III the world's tallest pygmy? Well, that's a good question. And you know, I'm going to have to say time will tell. <laughs> to use, for those of you not familiar, that's a, a metaphor that Charles has gone to time and again. Like, yeah, okay, you're tall, but you're tall, you're tall for, for a pygmy. Yeah. 
<laughs> the world's tallest pygmy. Yeah, he's like, you know, yay big. Wow. Um, it's 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 basically a distinction that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm the world's thinnest fat man. <laughs> okay. All right. Um uh, and I, I would say too, to those who uh love to bag on the British monarchy because it's not Catholic. Remember a couple of things. One is the desiccated remains of a system that was Catholic. It gives you some faint idea of what that might look like. You won't see it anywhere else now. Not even the papal court functions the way it did. Second, uh, it's true. They aren't Catholic, so we should pray for their conversion, shouldn't we? Yeah, I thought so. Thirdly, um, being a uh, Catholic institution in root, it does still throw up Catholic-minded people from time to time, from uh, Charles I, II, and James III all the way down to um, Edward VII, who converted on his deathbed, uh, George III, who pushed through uh, Catholic emancipation until he uh, grew disgusted with the French and Spanish kings for backing the rebels in our civil war. Um, it's a, it's, Let us pray for him that he do the right thing and that his better side and better views prevail. And, um, you know, just one one other thing to mention. I mean, since everyone's talking about Charles and a lot of different opinions out there, um, one that I'm coming across uh, in discussing uh, it with a lot of women, um, I mean, of many varieties, non-Catholic, non-monarchist, all, all the types is uh, a lot of people have a, lo a lot of women have held on to the um, bitterness over the uh, fallout with uh, Princess Diana and the marital issues there. And it's so interesting to me because, you know, I point out to them that, you know, the standard you're holding them to, you don't hold our normal politicians to there's, and they have all admitted that, well, it's the prince, it's royalty, it's different. And that is amazing to me. That is, that is amazing to me because this person who doesn't impact you, this, you, you hate monarchy, <laughs> but, but, but the king needs to be this morally superior, or, or the prince uh, needs to be this morally superior, perfect person, but you hate monarchy, and you love democracy, but all the politicians that rule you can be total scumbags and it can hardly bother so, you at all. Yeah. And so how no, did no, that happen? Well, I mean, it, it's kind of a gradual process. But the truth of the matter is human beings are naturally monarchical. And there is something about monarchy that reaches out to us whether we like it or not. And that's why we get upset and offended 
when a royal has a mistress, whereas if a governor of a state or the president turns the White House into a bordello like Clinton, we just sort of shrug and say, oh, well, you know, whatever. Boys will be boys. Um, the other thing, too, you've got to bear in mind is that both uh, Prince Charles and, uh, oh, sorry, King Charles and Queen Camilla have repeatedly uh, expressed their contrition for the whole thing that happened with Diana, who was far from a spotless saint herself in this whole weird adventure. Um, I think, I think, frankly, that the whole Diana issue uh, really is misunderstood. I think that if Princess Diana had lived, she hadn't died young and beautiful at an early age, today she might very well be an incredible source of scandal if she was still alive. Hmm. Uh, so let's cut the man some slack and see if he's able to live up to the graces of his coronation. And, you know, for those of you who somehow get your jollies by poo-pooing the whole thing. Keep it to yourself. Okay, uh, I guess, well, looking forward now, actually, when is the coronation? Is this is it this upcoming week already? Or No, 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 no. The okay. coronation probably will not be until next year. What's happening, uh, what's happening right now, today, they have the proclamation, uh, ex the accession proclamation, uh, which... Um, uh, the the um, oh, my mind is going. Um, the College of Arms uh, has the thing, the text of the of the accession proclamation. What happened was that this morning there was a a meeting of the Privy Council, which never happens except at the accession. At which time this proclamation was drafted and then read, and then read to the people from St. James's Palace. Uh, later in the day, it was done again from the uh, Royal Exchange in the city of London. And then tomorrow, it's going to be said in cities all over the empire, the Commonwealth. But here it is. Whereas it has pleased Almighty God to call to his mercy our late sovereign lady, Queen Elizabeth, the second of blessed and glorious memory, by whose decease the crown of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is solely and rightfully come to the Prince Charles Philip Arthur George. We, therefore, the Lord's spiritual and temporal of this realm and members of the House of Commons, together with other members of Her late Majesty's Privy Council and representatives of the realms and territories, aldermen and citizens of London and others, do now hereby, with one voice and consent of tongue and heart, publish and proclaim that the Prince Charles Philip Arthur George is now, by the death of our late sovereign of happy memory, become our only lawful and rightful liege lord, Charles III, by the grace of God of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and of his other realms and territories, King, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the Faith, to whom do we acknowledge all faith and obedience with humble affection? Beseeching God by whom kings and queens do reign to long and happy years to reign over us. 
dividends in James's palace this 10th day of September in the year of our Lord, 2022. God save the king. Mm. So that will be read eventually from Vancouver to Melbourne to uh, uh, Wellington to Edinburgh and way and all over. Red how? This, that hasn't been... Uh, media has changed so much. Last time that was done that that. Well, I mean, it's it's certainly it's certainly gotten uh, televised a lot. You can see the uh, you can see the uh, the two ceremonies today on online, which I did, oh, um, I and doubtless that'll be the same with the whole flock of them that'll be all over the place starting tomorrow. But with that proclamation, His Majesty the King is definitely in place. Mm. All right. Um, move your move your screen a little bit, Charles. I'm sorry. Move your screen a little bit. There we go. <laughs> okay. Well, great. That's amazing. Well done. Is that good? Do you that's, like that? That's perfect. Let's end the show like that, topsy turvy. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, it's, you know they always say you should mix it up a bit. <laughs> All right, Charles, any final thoughts? Um, yeah. Well, yes, yes. Um, you know, we, we, uh, we all have a new king. Uh, he's not the king of the United States, of course. But as you said, the queen was always the queen. And the truth is that despite the revolution and despite our protestations of independence, we are now and always have been fascinated with the British monarchy, uh, partly because in so many ways it has features that we consciously or not lack in our system. The, both the queen and her son, the king, uh, have spoken continually of their office and to a great degree acted this way in terms of service and sacrifice to their peoples. Uh, we have nothing like that in our country, but I sense we're drawn to it. I think that's why Blessed Emperor Carl has 20 shrines across the United States, because he was the epitome of, of a monarch sacrificing himself for his peoples. Uh, and I think that on some level, we hunger for a, a leader like that. But I don't think we'll ever be able to get him out of a ballot box, no matter how hard we try. It's a bit like trying to get drunk off orange juice. Wow. All right. Um, that'll do it for this episode, uh, everyone. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, you want more content? Sign up to become a patron for as low as five dollars a month. Get access to the this week's pre-show and all the pre-shows. About probably hundred hours worth of content. Um, but yeah. So with that, um, what is it if it's Monday, Charles? Uh, the Queen is dead. That that is not the correct answer. The Queen is dead. Long live the King. Okay, that's appropriate, but not as an answer to this question. Oh, oh, what was the question again? 
What is it if it's Monday? Don't help me. I, <laughs> I, I, I can't tell if you're joking or not. It's off the menu. What about the soul you save? Maybe the king's. Or even your own. Here we go. Good enough. All right. See you next time, everyone. Good night. God bless you all.